I imagine to be like Steven Spielberg of independent yes. cinema, right? It's ChargerCast. I'm Nick Novak. With me today is someone very exciting. It's Faraz Ansari. Hey, I'm going to have to read this so I get it right for us. Uh, independent, queer, non-binary Muslim filmmaker from right here in Mumbai. Thank you. Hi. Hi. How nice to you? meet you. Nice to have you on the Thank show. Thank you so much. Um, so, look, let's start a little bit since we, we let off with words, mm -hmm. right? Um, let's talk about words for a quick second. Queer, um, LGBTQI, um, non-binary. Um, walk us through a little bit your view on sort of what these words mean and how people use them. Uh, well, I think if you look at it, they are just words to begin with. But when you start looking at it on, in a broader spectrum and start adding value to what it really means, especially to a person of the color from India, uh, things start to change a bit, you know. And um, although non-binary is a very recent addition to my life, because when you start traveling and when you start meeting people, your horizons, your understanding of who you are as a person also start growing. And um, I think it's a lot to do with who I am as a person that kind of evolved as time went by. And uh, yeah, I think all these words found a way to me. Uh, words that you kind of feel more attached to in that sense. And words that really represent who you are because I think my journey as a filmmaker has been all about that. It's to find who I am through the stories I, I tell. And I think the best way to do that is to find who you are to begin with. You know, yeah. like Frida Kahlo said, like she needs to know who she is and fall in love with who she is as a person before she can even create something. So, but, but what does non-binary mean to you? Like, what does that what does that represent? It's gender fluid. You know, I don't want to f I don't want to fit in any binary that puts me in a box as a male or as a female because I think they both come with their own limitations and their own the prejudices attached to gender. And I think gender is so fluid, you know. I mean, one morning I wake up, I feel more masculine. The other morning I might feel more feminine. Mm. And then to kind of redefine yourself every day is such a task. Especially like being a queer person already, <clears throat> you... Or every day is almost a coming out day to someone in that sense, you know. The minute you walk into a cafe or you walk into, I don't know, like your film set, people will immediately judge you for who you are and you have to come out in some way or the other so i feel uh, in that journey as a queer person you have to come out and i felt let's go the whole mile and also come out as a non-binary person so it just makes life easier for me you know i don't have to fit in a box anymore but let's talk about the word queer for a second um just because i can remember as a as a child and i look back now in horror but we played a children's game called smear the queer <laughs> <laughs> this is the god this is a game and this is a game that was played throughout the United States yeah. um and you would basically go around and try to tackle one person who and I don't think I didn't know what it was what it yeah. meant it was just a game right yeah. but now I sort of have this like that that word the word queer has a very negative connotation sure. almost like a slur but yet you sort of identify yourself as as queer so what what does that word mean to you and and has that word come full circle I think given the queer community, every slur that was thrown at us, we've taken that as a prized possession, you know. Huh. Whether it's faggot or whether it's queer, we've really celebrated those words, we've embraced those words. And I think that speaks massively about the community on itself, you know, that nothing is going to bring us down, you know. We celebrate whatever 
weekend and uh, i think in that journey i i come very late because i was born in the late 80s and i grew up in the 90s so my understanding of being a queer person in india was very limited because india was still finding a voice in the queer spectrum you know we didn't know what who was you know and growing up in a very um, liberal muslim family uh, my parents allowed me to be who i am and there was a constant discussion of who i like and who i don't like and through all of that they allowed me to explore myself again this comes from a place of extreme privilege in that sense mm-hmm. you know that i was allowed to choose who i wanted to be and uh, or, or maybe just uh, find who i am in that sense so uh, these words again i think they are great celebration of identity and i think that's how i i look at them yeah but so one of the things that really attracted me to to having you on and to talking to you is your story. You have a really really good story. Thank you. Um but let's talk a little bit about that. You grew up in a in a Muslim household mm-hmm. um which you describe as liberal, but I mean that means different things to different sure. people. Um <laughs> what was sort of, you know, let's let's maybe fast forward through childhood a little bit and get towards your late teen years. You know, where where were you at at that point and and sort of what happened next? Huh. Well, uh I think I was really bullied in school. Okay. Um I think when you are a little different people really don't want to want you to be different. They want you to be like everyone else. You know, they want you to they want to identify with who you are. And the easiest way to identify with someone is by if they are more like who you are, you know, in terms of your behavior and all of that. And I never was really uh at home I was allowed to be who I wanted to be. So that there was a constant disconnect when i used to go to school cuz people were like constant i was constantly being bullied for who i was and uh, that really created a great deal of discomfort cuz it was all external internally i was very cool with who i was okay so the pressures were more external and i just had to find a way to go around that so um of course uh, a teenager especially for a person who was queer are way more difficult than otherwise um but yeah it was a journey and i'm glad i found a way around it and uh, my family was very embracing in that sense of course they had questions about my future and you know where do i stand given where india was then uh and where india is um this they still have questions like we i think acceptance is multidimensional in that sense it's not just you know one layer and one once people accept you for who you are and it's done it's not that i think acceptance is an everyday journey and i think um, that is something that is continuous it's going on yeah, with myself there's a and outside. spectrum of acceptance Absolutely. too right i Absolutely. mean there's sort of you know i don't like it but i accept it versus yep. i wholly embrace it Absolutely. and acceptance doesn't necessarily mean condoning or or whatever mm-hmm. it is uh at some point you ended up going to the united states on an exchange program talk about that a little bit that was actually life changing for me because i think i was 17 when i was taken out of my my nest and just you know put on a flight to america and um i think for a 17 year old um it is such a influential age to be you know cuz uh, you're really f- forming your identity who you are and what you want to be and when i went to the us i was really exposed to a different world altogether you know a world where people were allowed to be who they wanted to be and celebrate themselves and i think that identity understanding was very essential for me to come back home with that and kind of i almost felt um 
like I was in charge of myself, you know, like uh, I had found a way to deal with homophobia in that sense because I saw a lot of queer people in the US who were living great lives, you mm -hmm. know, openly in that sense. So that was really transformative for me. And um, I'm glad that happened so early in life because then I could imbibe those qualities and bring them back home within the community back home. So that was incredible. Okay, so you get back from the United States and then how do you sort of begin this journey to uh, embark on this journey as a filmmaker? I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was four years old. You're kidding. <laughs> how do you know at four it's, years old that you want to be uh, a filmmaker? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, I love to tell uh, stories and I think uh, when I was four years old I come from a very cosmopolitan family so we celebrate every festival at home and I think it was Diwali where I had my aunts visiting from the US and I used to put up this little play every Diwali for them and I had my my Barbie dolls and my He-Mans and my G.I. Joes you know very gender fluid even then and <laughs> I put up a play with them and they were watching it and uh, one of my aunts, she walked up to me and she like, is that what you want to do when you grow up? And I said, what is that? She said, you want to tell stories through people? And I said, I think so. She's like, oh. And then she turned to my mother and she said, your, your, your child wants to be a filmmaker. Huh. And that just got on. Wow. It just stuck to me like hard glue. And um, yeah, I think it was great. I really resonated with that. And it was then I think it was just about finding a way how to become a filmmaker, you know, because India, when I was growing up, you'd be shocked to know that um, we don't really have film sensitive courses way back in the day. So w when I had to graduate, it could just be arts or commerce or science. Okay. That's it. Right. There's no majoring in anything. There's no minoring in anything like it happens in the US. So um, I think when I went to the US, I kind of realized that there's so much more to do in terms of education as well. Uh, and I always wanted to go back and, you know, kind of have that, have access to that, you know, as a filmmaker. But I think um, those six weeks were um, educative enough in that sense to kind of come back and be like, I can be independent and, uh, and I can do this on my own, you know, and find my own voice. Yeah, but what does that look like? I mean, do you go to do you go and buy a video camera and, and you know start going and uh, here's my film or like what's the what's that step? You write. You That's write. Where it begins. Okay, you start with writing. Yeah, it begins on a blank sheet of paper, as overwhelming as that, right? Just staring at a blank sheet of paper, and I think finding the courage to write a story that really resonates with who you are as a person. So that's where it started off for me, and uh, I kept writing as a child, I, even in school, you know, I think, I think some people are just born writers, you write stories, you write poems, whatever. Um, and I kept writing, and uh, one fine day I had the courage to reach out to someone who had a camera and be like, I have a, a story to tell and I have a few friends who are actors. Maybe we could all get along and tell a story. And uh, that's how it happened. Uh, okay. What, what was that first that first film? Oh, God, it was the worst. <laughs> everyone <laughs> was, always, everyone it, always it, looks... At the time, it, you didn't think it was the worst. At the well, time, you thought yeah. it was amazing. Well, I, I was... I, I, in my head, I, I imagined to be like Steven Spielberg of independent yes. cinema, right? That's who I w imagined to be. Obviously, turned out to be a total mess. And <laughs> it was extremely embarrassing, but it was great learning, right? And I think when the great learning happens, then I think there are no regrets in life. So um, great learning happened through that. I, I made a film called Fish Tank, okay. which was actually... Uh, quite relevant because it explored gender identity, it explored a dysfunctional family, it explored a 
young teenage boy going going through great uh, reckoning within and externally and uh, yeah it just turned out to be a bad badly shot film <laughs> but uh, i'm proud of it in some sense like well, i think you kind of like this people always say this right oh such a mess it was so terrible but, but it was but like that was your that was your and forgive the pun that was your coming out moment right like that was true that should have like a, that's like the art you draw as a kid like you know and it's terrible but you're like nah this is yeah. this is the beginning of it all yeah um okay so Eventually, you end up writing a film called Sisak, yep. which was, and I may get this wrong as well, the first uh, silent LGBT film in India. Yeah, that's what right. What was the thinking behind that film? So, uh, actually, to before that, I, I did write a few films for others. Okay. Uh, sadly, I didn't have uh, the, the support to direct them on my own because the, I wrote them for big directors who had more fame and who had a career so they chose them to direct the film over me but I did write a lot of films before that um, I also kind of uh, was the associate director on many of the films that I wrote um, but yes Sisak was my first independent film in that sense and um, so uh, I actually wrote uh, uh, Sisak in 2013 when for a brief amount of time section 377 was read down and um, I felt great happiness and I wanted to express it, but immediately my happiness was so short-lived because uh, a lot of religious groups started standing up and defending 377 and they wanted it back in action and then it was brought back in action in uh, December 2013. And uh, I remember I was in a hill station uh, up way north and a lot of my friends reached out to me expressing how uh, exposed they felt it was almost like a witch hunt because a lot of people started coming out oh only to have it then sort of like and then just to take back. it back oh, okay. you know just for like a few months so they felt exposed they felt uh, be uh, because they had been vocal about their relationships you know and all of that and I felt so helpless sitting in a small hill station in North India writing a film about a cisgender man loving a cisgender woman because that's what works in Bollywood right so I was writing that film and it was that thing was a slap on my face. I was just like, what am I doing? You know, what is the point of being an independent queer filmmaker if I'm not really going to use the privilege of being a filmmaker to express the stories that are most important to be told? And that's when I wrote Sisak. It wasn't meant to be a film. It was just a poem, really, on four pages of, you know, paper. And uh, when I revisited it, we many years later, I think in 2016, uh, and I said, well, it, I think I'm ready now to make it into a film. And I just had to make a, f I had to, I, I had to sell my car. I had to put my apartment on rent and I had to call a few close friends saying, I have some money with me, let's make a film. It's a silent film about two men who meet on the Bombay local train. We're not gonna get any permissions f from the local authorities. We're gonna put the camera in a backpack, get on a train and make this film. And they said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the, it's not much of a pitch. Uh. <laughs> well, they were like, you want to get us killed? You want to get us behind bars? What, yeah. what is up with you? But I think I had to take that risk. You know, I think uh, it was just the right time. It felt right. It felt right for some reason. And Are you cognizant of risk, though? I mean, <laughs> like, like, so no. in, in this, I mean, it kind of takes us your, your, your next film project, um, Sheer Korma is about two Muslim women, two lesbian um, Muslim women, 
um, which, I mean, it's almost like you're a glutton for punishment, right? And talk about taking risks, you're taking two huge risks, right? Yeah. Both on the, the, the gender sexuality piece and also on the religious piece. Um, so do you feel your safety is at risk? Um, does that cross your mind when you're doing these projects? Yeah, I think I do. And I think uh, that is something that I have made peace with, you know, the fact that because being an openly queer Muslim non-binary filmmaker in India, um, the amount of hate I get on social media, the amount of hate I get within the queer community, the h amount of hate I get across, it's just something that, you know, and it's so sad to say, but, you know, I have kind of got okay with that you know I've, I've got okay with the hate and it's just terrible but I think um, it you reach a point that you cannot really uh, pay attention to that but carry forward your legacy and you know you just want to do what you want to do and I felt this was the right time to open a conversation about sexuality and religion and talk about it in a more mainstream sort of aspect rather than it being a edgy independent film I wanted it to be mainstream because I feel these conversations need, don't need to happen on the frills of the society, you know. It needs to be mainstream. It needs to happen in every living room across India hmm. and how to do it in the best possible way. So I had to find really well-known, celebrated actors from the Indian film industry to come forward and be like, we'll be a part of your film, you know, because you have something relevant to say, something important to say, and about time to talk about it, you know, in the best possible way, without making people uncomfortable, really. So, um, yeah, of course, there is constant fear, because the day I remember the poster of Sheer Korma got released, my Twitter was full of hate. A lot of uh, fundamentalists were tagging other fundamentalists, asking them, requesting them, begging them to uh, ask me to stop the film and boycott my film and declare a fatwa on me and all of that happened. I want I want to ask about this the hate though, and I'm sorry to to drag you down this road, but I think it's relevant. Um, it's two Muslim women falling in love. Was the hate? Was it anti? LGBT hate was it was it um, Muslims thinking that that this is against God like what was the sort of the the focus of it you'd be surprised it was actually from the right-wing Hindutva fundamentalist groups huh. who want who were requesting the their the counterparts in Islam to declare a fatwa on me so you brought together uh, <laughs> intra-religious fundamentalists yeah. over the LGBT <laughs> issue all right well. I united them with, with hate yeah. I gave them a reason to come together <laughs> so it was very multi-layered in that sense because they were like we hate you but we're going to unite on this and hold hands and hate you together briefly and then condemn you and continue to you know so it was just so you get attacked online, but we were speaking earlier, and, and, and you've been the subject of some harassment in person and, yeah. and sort of in real life as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it happened when I made um, Ursusak, and Ursusak got great uh, um, exposure in the West, and it, it won 59 international awards, uh, becoming the first ever Indian film actually to win so many awards, which is such a big milestone for Indian cinema, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, ironically, none of those awards were ever won in India, which again speaks of how um, <clears throat> non-embracing the community back here is. And um, I remember I was on the front page of a newspaper, and I was sitting at Delhi airport, and I was clicking a picture to send it to my mom because it was such a 
big moment to see yourself, you know, on the front page of a big sure. uh, newspaper. And I wanted to share that moment with her. And before I could know, I had like hot coffee thrown on my face by this man. And then he turned to me and he said, people like you should be murdered for making such films. And in all honesty, I don't think he had even watched my film. He just read the headlines and he read what I was trying to do and who I am. And he had so much hate for me. So it was, um, th things like this really, you know, like shake you off for a bit. But then they also reaffirm your faith that it is so important to go out and tell these stories. You know, I mean, Harvey Milk had to take a gun, you know, I mean, it had to, he had to take a bullet, you know, to stand up for what they believed in. So I think it's important to keep doing. Of course, it comes with a great deal of um, putting yourself out there and at risk to these things. But somebody's got to do it. So you just said, you know, the story has to be told. Um, but it sounds like you also have a hard time maybe getting that story out to where you want to get it out, uh, mm -hmm. at least within India. Mm -hmm. um, would you feel comfortable doing a screening of your film on a university campus in India? Uh, with Sheer Korma, I don't know, to yeah. be very honest. And the reason I don't know is because, um, A, it's not just about the queer people. It's also about the queer Muslim people. It's also about non-binary people, my film. So it's really going to... and especially given where India is, you know, with minority rights and the queer rights and people who don't identify in the limited LGBTQ spectrum, you know, non-binary people for that matter. I don't know if it will be a safe thing to take it to Indian, Indian universities because even with a film like Sisak, which is a silent film, where these two men who fall in love with each other without even holding each other, without even shaking hands with each other, that film had so much of resistance when I took it to campuses across India. On the day of the screening, I was constantly called and asked to back out, not show up, or this will happen to me, that will happen to me. You know, they were really threatening me. But I went on and I screened the film. I think with Sheer Kurma, I'm really scared. So I'm j I just have to be cautious. I mean, I've made the film, but I don't know if I will be actually able to take it across Indian campuses, although I really, really, really want to. What about sort of mainstream cinema houses? Um, given the fact it is a longer short film, it is 30 minutes in duration, uh, I don't think India has woken up to the fact that even short films, slightly longer short films, can be a um, great revenue-making exercise, hmm. especially when they have uh, the big actors. So I don't think we're going to find uh, distribution and exhibition. Uh, here's another thing which I must share, that short films in general across film festivals across the world are always treated like they don't belong there because they want to favor feature films, you know, when film festivals reach out to me and, and I ask them, hey, will you be flying me in? They're like, well, we only fly feature filmmakers. So <laughs> there is so much of, you know, uh, it's, it's a constant battle to kind of put your stories out. And uh, people don't realize the amount of risk it involves in making a short film than making a feature film, right? No, you're right. I look at something like the Oscars, too, where they always give an award out for, you know, sure. best short film. And yeah. I, I don't, I've never seen any of them. Exactly. Right? A lot of times because I don't know where to see them. Sure. Right? Where, sure. where do short films... Where are they shown? Where do I so, find them? I'm, I'm asking you, where do I, where do I find a no, short film? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> with Sasaki, it was uh, a lot of 
150 film festivals. Okay. And other than that, and if you can't really make it to a film festival, you find it on some OTT platform somewhere, which I did not do with my earlier film. I, in fact, put it on YouTube for free. Oh, right on. Because... Um, a lot of people from the Middle East reached out to me. A lot of people from Islamic countries reached out to me saying, we really want to watch your film, but we don't have access to OTT platforms. We don't even have a credit card to buy a subscription for a paid OTT platform. So how do we access your film? And I had to take a decision that I said, let me make the film available for free on YouTube. So wherever you are in the world, you can access it if you get to know about the film, that is. Again, there's another thing that being a person of color, being a queer person of color, our voices are never really heard on a more global platform, you know. So a film like Sisak needed great PR exercise hmm. across the West. And that actually came in from the awards that we constantly were winning. It was almost like two awards a week. So much so that it kind of got really... Um, exhausting and extremely uh, pressurizing for me as a filmmaker. I was like, if my first film has won 59 awards, how will I match up to this? <laughs> you know, it's it kind of sets up a ballpark, a landmark, a milestone for you, which is kind of un unachievable, you know. I didn't want to make a film to win awards. I just wanted to make a film because I had a story to tell, you know, and it's exactly the case with the new film. I had a story to tell, I found a way to tell it. Um, I must also share this with you. When I wrote Cheer Korma, and I started reaching out to, to producers, potential producers in India, one producer actually sat across me and said, why do you want to make a film with women protagonists? Ha! Huh? It wasn't even about uh, they're lesbian or it's, it's We're, we're going to stop you at female protagonists. And here's the thing. After Section 377 was read down, being gay is the new cool. It's the new black, right? So, um, so everyone's good. With the they, were, they were great. They were like, make this into, you know, two male protagonists and we'll support it. We'll give you money. And also don't make it into a Muslim family. You don't want to get into that. And I was like, oh, no, but my film is about queer Muslim women. It has to be that. So it was the battle that I had to fight even then to make this film. And then I just I I really lucked out because I found this amazing the producer who agreed to be like, you do you. And uh, she uh, here's another fun fact. Seer Korma, 95 percent of my crew is composed entirely of women, huh. women of color. So, I mean, my set was like majorly women yeah and like they were like just like few men around floating so did that change the vibe of what a typical set would be like what how does it change the vibe i think it just makes uh given what sheer korma is as a film it is a very sublime subtle understanding of love and acceptance there's no toxic masculinity i keep saying my film is toxic masculine free uh and i think having uh being surrounded by so many women creators, be it my producer, be it my editor, be it my my production designer, my line producer, all women. And that kind of really adds on to an energy on set, you know, which is very intangible. It's very hard to put in words, but I think when you're on set, you kind of feel it, you know. It's very different from men kind of running around, being very alpha about it. Here are these women nurturing you, guiding you gently into telling the story the way you want to. So that actually turned out to be a great experience for me and it's something that I want to stick with. 
because i think when we talk about representation we really talk about representation in very limited capacities we don't really talk about representation in a larger sense i think representation not just in front of the camera but also behind the camera mm. matters largely especially the kind of stories that i want to tell sure but so, but you also but in front of the camera you got some pretty big star power for this yeah. film as well who's yeah. uh, who's in the film so uh there is shabana azmi okay she's i think she's won 5 to 6 national awards uh, i have divya datta again she's won many national awards and i have swara bhaskar so three fantastic actors from in cinema who decided to support the story and i think you know this helps cuz um, i want the film to be mainstream i think enough telling stories about the queer people in independent cinema of course that should continue but i think it's time to break in, into the mainstream and mainstream needn't be male dominated it needn't have male protagonists it needn't be crass it needn't be loud it can be sublime it can be gentle it can be feminine and i think that's something i want to re-explore you know redefine mainstream while i'm at it because i think there is a place for all of us under the sun and i think especially in the global cinema spectrum the queer muslim women continue to be the most underrepresented community you know i mean what was the last time you saw a film about queer muslim women I, that's why you know it's funny i, I was shocked to see uh, a film being made about the subject frankly um because it does seem so potentially divisive and if you told me to name a famous um queer muslim woman anywhere i, I don't know that i could exactly um and that's interesting right um and why it doesn't mean they're not that, that they don't exist sure. yeah Okay, so how do these 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 actors, how the actresses, um how do they respond when you approach them with a script like this? Or I mean, are they concerned for their own like on backlash and cr- I don't want you to put words in their mouth, but what was the sense from that? So all these three women are quite revolutionary. All the three actresses in my film, they are very revolutionary in their own path and not just in cinema but outside of cinema. They've been great social revolutionaries. They've been fighting and standing up for great causes humanitarian causes and causes that concern minorities and being allies to the queer community in that sense all three of them so when i reached out to them it was um, more to do with the fact that they believed in the story and what it would do potentially once it is made and they didn't really honestly care about what would happen to them professionally mm. which a lot of actors generally do you know they're very concerned about uh, and why not they should be but uh these three incredible actors in that sense they just said let's do this you know and we don't care what's going to happen but this is an important story to tell and we're going to back you for it if you're going to have the courage to go out there and make this story we will invest in you with our talent and help you tell this story it was it was an understanding of sorts in that sense it was just like great minds coming together and saying let's just put this together and let's see what happens you know H- have you found um i don't know if acceptance is the right word but uh, understanding within the islamic community uh you know uh that is a very interesting question because um my uh, i am not very interactive with the community uh cuz the islamite practice is very personal to me hmm. uh and i think there are various understandings of islam as a religion and um, of course like every other religion does uh and i feel that my islam is personal my islam is a religion of peace it is a religion of love and uh, i don't think uh, 
I remember this one thing which I must share with you. When I was uh, uh, growing up, uh, my mum used to keep reminding me the 99 names that Allah has. Hmm. And one of them is uh, the most merciful, the most forgiving, the most compassionate, the most loving. And this is my understanding of God. And when I know this, I put two plus two together and I'm like, how can my God be hateful of anyone? You know, yeah. it's just a non-valid conversation. God is all accepting. God is all loving. God is all forgiving. So everything that you do is accepted already. It is embraced already. So my identity of who I am as a queer person is embraced already. My identity of who I love has been embraced already. So I think that is my understanding of Islam. Of course, it does not fit into the mainstream understanding of what Islam is known for, you know, in the mainstream. But I think that is my job also as, you know, coming from a Muslim family, I feel it is important for the world to understand that how normal Muslim families are, you know. We don't live in homes that have green walls. We don't have guns. We don't belong to any terrorist organizations. When I was growing up, uh, I remember my mother constantly reminding me that your religion is love and peace, and that is it. You know, I was never forced to do anything that I didn't want to. And I think that sort of access never really finds representation in mainstream media. You know, it's always about what sells, what's going to, you know, create a stir, what's going to create a storm. And let's talk about that. But I think uh, there is a narrative that exists beyond that, the narrative of real people like me, you know, and that narrative is so important to be put out and celebrated. Um, there's another very interesting thing. My my mother's elder sister, who I lost uh, in 2010 to cancer, I was very close to her. She really, she really brought me up, and uh, she was one of the most iconic uh, women I have known in my life. And she constantly used to say this one thing that, without God's will, there's not a single thing in the universe that happens. And I believe in that, you know. I and uh, she used to say even. The fluttering on the, of the leaves that happen on trees is God's will. So if everything is God's will, everyone is valid in that sense. Yeah. You know, of course, it opens a deeper conversation in so many ways. But I think uh, when it comes to love, I think uh, how can love be a crime? How can love be a sin? It's so blasphemous to even think in that sense. You know, love is not a sin. I find this dichotomy though of. of what appears to be your life, where you're the, the subject of so much hate, but everything that you seem to stand for and everything that you seem to preach in your message has been love and kindness, right? In fact, I think we saw, I saw an email from you that you signed it, like love and rainbows or something. Love and bright lights. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> and just that the mo this movie, right, Sheer Korma, it's not a, it's a, it's a love story that just happens to be about two um, Muslim women, yep. right? Um, all the sort of points that you bring up about religion and your and your activism or, or your artistic vision is about love, yet you seem to be the recipient of an awful lot of hate. And I wonder how do you maintain sort of this positive vision and outlook when you do have so much hate coming in at you? Yeah, I think that's a... That's a constant negotiation that one has to deal with when I think being an artist and mm -hmm. being out there, uh, you really are very vulnerable at 
all points in time you know because everything that is thrown at you you have to accept it embrace it and convert it into art and i think all of that hate kind of gets converted within me and gets transformed into love i don't know how it happens i don't know why it happens i've been trying to figure that out myself if there is a code to it if, the, if there's a math to it but i sucked at math in school so of course i'm going to fail at that equation but um i think when you know what hate can do the the potential that hate has and the amount of damage it can do it is a constant choice that belongs to you that you have to choose love over hate through and through of course it is very taxing it uh, i i was actually i went through depression through 2017 because of the hate that was being thrown at me and it was just like volatile hate you know not just online the bullying and online harassment but harassment happening around me you know when i was traveling and being a queer person of the color and traveling to you know the west it is uh, not a very friendly place to begin with um and uh, it was uh, it really kind of really made me all the more uh, sensitive towards telling stories about love because i feel that there has to be a balance that has to be restored in the universe you know the amount of hate i get it has to equal up to the amount of love i can give right you know so i think that balance is very essential it's all about the yin and yang you know sure so when the yin keeps increasing you find a way to increase the yang and bring it back into you know um equal yeah. it up and we come full circle to religion yes um, absolutely <laughs> all right um i'd love to to chat more maybe we'll have you back and talk some more but absolutely. we'll have to sort of leave it there for now uh faraz ansari uh queer non-binary muslim <laughs> filmmaker extraordinaire the the movie out right now is sheer korma uh coming to a film festival near you and maybe other places as well i uh, encourage you to check it out and um where where can else can we find you for like farazansari.com or something or Well I ha- I am verified on Twitter. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so follow on Twitter and say nice things. Or Instagram. I mean okay. it, I think Instagram is more of a safe space compared to Twitter because uh, Twitter is so full of hate. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe it it's is. the pictures, right? It's I think it's just it's just it's just visual, you know. It's more of a visual medium. So I think when you look at happy pictures and I got to tell you it's it's hard to be mad at this. <laughs> like you have to be mad. Yeah, just kind. No, yeah, just kind. I know, but I think it's 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 important to have a visual reference so instagram is the best place to find me and my work and of course uh, sheer kurma is going to travel to a lot of festivals across the world cool. and not just festivals but also universities colleges schools and uh, yeah who knows maybe at a city near you or in your city okay cool all right we'll leave it there that's charge cast that's fraz i'm sorry i'm nick novak